Oh man, I can't wait to see my podcast chums again. I've been on holiday for two weeks. I haven't seen any results on news from Wednesday at the moment. I wonder how they've been getting on. Guys, it's Paddy. I'm back from my trip. How are we all? Guys? What's wrong? Why are you all just sitting in the darkness, rocking back and forth? What happened while I was away? Paddy, you're going to want to sit down for this one. Six and a half hours later. And then Delphon Chansiri posted what essentially is a drunk text to all of us at midnight on the official website. Day two. And then we sacked Carlos on Christmas Eve. Day three. And then Glenn Lubins fouled someone else. And then Jacob Butterfield fouled someone else. And then Morgan Fox wasn't actually close enough to the man he was marking to foul him. Day four. And then Paul Jewell resigned as assistant manager at Oldham. And he's the odds-on favourite to be the new Wednesday manager. Twelve seconds later. No! 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 We're going to make it through this year if it kills us here on the Owls AmeriCast. Sheffield Wednesday Opinion with an American Accent. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and I am not the only member of the pod under the weather this week. Uh, Various ones of us sound like various points of Leonard Cohen's late career. I think I'm probably like 90s Leonard Cohen at this point. So I'm drinking a little bit of tea tonight. Uh, I make my tea a little differently. I like chai with... uh, fair amount of sugar and a splash of milk. That doesn't sound that unusual. But what I do is I put my chai tea bag in a mason jar full of bourbon for a few hours and then put that in my uh, in my cuppa. It makes a fine little cuppa. We are short one again this week. Evan Skilter is under the weather. He's also been felled by, you know, having to watch Wednesday for the last week. But returning from... A lone spell at the Wednesday week. It is James Allen. James, what are you drinking? Good morning, Jeff. Uh, I say good morning because uh, it's two a.m. and I'm still in England, so I'm uh, I'm drinking water in a desperate attempt to stay uh, hydrated after the last two and a half weeks of uh, beer drinking and podcasting in uh, in the UK. Um, but the good news is I'm used to waking up with small children in the middle of the night who are having nightmares. So it's nice to uh, it's nice to be with you all again. Also back on the show this week is Patty Jones. Patty, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a uh, local brewery, NJ Beer Co., uh, in collaboration with 902 Brewing Company. It's called Brewer's Choice. Enjoy 001, it's called India Pale Ale, 7%, and it is around my fourth or fifth drink of the evening in preparation for this shit show. Bring it on. Also with us this week, of course, is Paul Owen. Paul, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm going for the business end of beer. I'm not going for any of this craft bollocks tonight. This is a business episode. I'm on Modelo. I've got six cans of Modelo Especial from Mexico. Ooh, the Especial, good choice. Yeah, it's a business beer for a business podcast. And there is a lot of new business. We're going to talk about business. Yeah, business. It's business time. Business time. Hope you all have your business socks on. 
Watford's business time. <laughs> I tell you what, I've got, tell you what, I have to say, I'm very impressed. James has actually joined us because I was only listening to James and James on the podcast <laughs> this morning on my way to work, uh, and and now he's here. He's a podcasting whore, isn't he? <laughs> he can't get enough of it either side of the Atlantic, unless there's two of them. I'm not going to listen out for subtle American uh, accent changes here tonight. I've definitely heard James's voice more than my family's voice over the past two weeks. Every time I turn on my phone, he seems to be poking out of it. And I'm all for that. Absolutely. We love James. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm going to take all of that as a, as a mild compliment. Um, I haven't got my business socks on because I'm in bed. So uh, I'll, uh, That's when business socks I'll, I'll, are best yeah. used. I'll tell you that I'm wearing my business pyjamas and leave it there. <laughs> yeah, leave it there, mate. <laughs> you should leave it there because we do have a lot to cover. It's been a busy week for Wednesday nights. We have to cover two games with a big bearing on the season, a new and very controversial CEO, and as we record this on Wednesday night, still no manager. And we'll jump right in with the Brentford game. Uh, all the good times from Lee Bullen's debut disappeared, James. You were there. Give us the live report since you didn't have Wi-Fi and couldn't tweet about it. Yeah, no, the Wi-Fi in uh, in West London wasn't superb, I have to say. Uh, to be fair, there was Wi-Fi in the in the Globe Pub where we were uh, we were massing before the game, but about a thousand Brentford fans turned up, and uh, and that bandwidth didn't last for very long. So, uh, so I actually had to focus on the football. Um, as well as a fantastic day out, so I, I think uh, since you've heard my, uh, my my report, I'll try and focus on a few uh, a few things that were kind of a particular interest for the for the American Owls uh, in the group. Um, I should shout out straight away, by the way, that we were joined by Cincinnati Owls. Um, so Evan's not here to defend his honour as uh, the primary Ohio Owl in the group. Um, we had uh, Elliot and Melissa uh, from Cincinnati who uh, decided to uh, to make Brentford away their first ever live Wednesday game. So they joined us in the uh, in the, the terrace uh, at Griffin Park, um, and probably for the first ten minutes, it, it was kind of it was a pretty good atmosphere. Really, there was uh, you know Wednesday lined up you know not quite as aggressively as we did against Forest. Went back to a four four two, albeit a four four two diamond with Reach in the number ten, um, and there was a great atmosphere, a lot of singing, a lot of bouncing, all the things that you'd expect from a, a Wednesday fan base that were pretty g'd up after the Forest result, and then it it, it fell apart pretty quickly. Um, I think after about the first 10, 15 minutes, we, you know, Brentford got the measure of us and then stepped their game up just, just mildly into first gear. Um, and that was enough for Wednesday. We, we, we couldn't keep, couldn't keep track of their movement. Um, they had, they were faster than us. Their fullbacks were getting a lot of play down the channels. Um, and as soon as they went into attacking mode, we wilted. Um, and that first goal was, was, it was right in front of us, um, at the, uh, the Wednesday end. Um, and they, they literally just kind of strolled through the defence and, and slotted the ball past Wildsmith. And, and then he kept us in the game uh, as we went through to to, uh, to half-time. Brentford could have been out of sight by half-time. Really, really troubling performance in the first half. And it, it didn't really get any better in the second, although Bullen did make a couple of changes to to try and improve the uh, the, the kind of the structure of the team. He brought uh, brought Jack Hunt on later on, who, who maybe gave us a little bit more probiness, but... Yeah, again, as soon as Brentford really kind of decided they wanted to go after the second goal, they, they didn't have to work too hard for it. It was uh, it was an all-round pretty disappointing result. I guess you might be able to hand wave this a little bit. You know, Brentford. I thought they looked a little bit better than you did, James, from watching it on TV. But you know, coupled with Burton, it did reveal some uh, larger problems with the squad. I think, Patty. Yeah, it totally did. I mean. Um... 
it's just a lack of I don't know whether it's effort or fitness um, or commitment. It just seems everything uh, combined at once to produce this lethargic performance. Uh, and like you say, it's, it's a, a theme that ran through most of the Christmas fixtures. Now, you can say you play a lot of fixtures over Christmas and New Year, so it can be expected that some of them are a little tired. Um, but some of it is just unacceptable. Some of it is just uh, people not switched on. It's just the head is not in the game. I mean, um, Leuven's, again, you can't really blame fitness at this point, I don't think. And Leuven's, it's just he's old. He's lost about six yards of pace rather than uh, the, the usual one yard of pace. And it's not just in his legs, it's in his head too. It doesn't seem to be in the game at all. And I, I hate to single Leuven's out here um, because there's obviously a number of players in this team that aren't playing to their... Um, to their uh, quality but unfortunately he's our captain and he's not leading by example at the moment he's uh he's not leading at all um and i, th- I think um after being substituted uh, in the last game he should be shouldn't play another game for the club because he's just not there he's just not with it whether it's fitness whether it's mental whether it's age he shouldn't be our captain he shouldn't be a center half first choice paul is anyone you want to single out for being particularly bad the last two games I don't know. I think there's too many, isn't there, to kind of focus on, and uh, it's probably not really fair because I think that the, you know the whole thing is kind of falling apart. You know, it's like sand through our fingers, isn't it? It's uh, it was there and it's sort of disintegrating at a at a shocking rate. I think um, you know we're sort of reflecting on last week's podcast and where we were after the uh, forest performance. You know. I don't want to say told you so, but I was very sort of reticent to jump on the shackles off bandwagon and get so excited. And I remember on last week's pod, just sort of calling out some of the defensive kind of terrifying moments. Uh, and unfortunately, I think they, you know, over the last couple of games now, they've they've come to bear. You know, I think uh, we've been brutally exposed for what we are, which is a, a unfortunately, you know, a third string team with with no real cohesive kind of continuity and uh, camaraderie or motivation i think i was talking about the the bounce you know it it, it bounced quickly and pretty high you know three nil it just didn't carry on unfortunately i think over the two last games you know brentford seemed like a side that did start their you know their their game with a with a degree of respect for us but very quickly found us out and as the game went on as James said kind of managed to bother getting into first gear which was probably enough to kind of put put us to the sword um I think Burton showed up with a very pedestrian game and and finished us off you know yeah I mean I think before we go on to the Burton game which was definitely the worst of the <laughs> the worst of two bad games um you know, you've got to give Brentford credit for the way that they they were organised. I mean, they they were everything that Wednesday weren't. They were they were well drilled. They were uh, they were very well cohesed, uh, to use your phrase, Paul. Um, and they they were hungry. You know, and they they got a, a team there that that was fighting for every ball, chasing down every lost cause, and um, and still not really having to work too hard for the win. Uh, they took their goals really really well. Um, you know, in contrast, the faces of the Wednesday players looked confused and looked like they really understood the system they were playing and, and they were fighting amongst themselves you know Paddy you mentioned Leuvens but uh, Padil started against Brentford and you know he was he was at sixes and sevens with Leuvens um, throughout most of that game 
Um, and then we saw again Leuven's, uh, you know, not really uh, faring any better with a different partner in Valencia in uh, in the game against Burton. So, so there's just a lot of miscommunication going on in that squad, um, and it's very clear from from what we've heard from Lee Bullen over the course of the two games that motivation um, is not not the sole problem here. You know, he's probably someone we could look to to motivate these players, but he he doesn't seem to be able to get a rise out of them uh, aside from that initial. Uh, very small bounce. It's sort of like a rubber ball without very much rubber in it uh, against Forrest. I think it bounced off a cliff, really, didn't it? And it's very possible that Forrest are just abject at this point based on their two matches with us. Yeah, and they sacked Mark Warburton uh, pretty swiftly after uh, after we beat them. And then I think Sunderland, uh, even Sunderland, uh, managed to beat them, uh, I think, in the subsequent game. So, yeah, no, Forrest are at a very low ebb. Um, and that perhaps exposes that game for what it was, which was you know us taking advantage of them being almost as bad as we were. But as Paul said, um, we were probably held into that that victory by the way Wildsmith kept us in the game before half time, and he couldn't keep us in the game uh, against Brentford uh, despite trying valiantly, or against Burton despite again trying valiantly. I guess he's one of the few people you can't uh, really quibble with over the last few weeks. But you know, there are plenty of other names we're going to be loath to see on the team sheet uh, over the next few weeks, but there aren't really any options here based on the uh, squad fitness right now. And that's the point, isn't it? I mean, if you have a group of people that are underperforming uh, or not on form or even just shattered, you can bring in the people behind them to fill that void. But we don't have those people because everyone's injured. These, this is our second string. Uh, we now look into the third string, which unfortunately, well, I'll say unfortunately, almost fortunately at this point, I think it should be bringing some of the youngsters in because uh, they're doing quite well in their own respective league. Uh, you would think they were they are fitter. Um, and when we're at this kind of ebb now where we've got no first team um, options and the second team aren't good enough, then I think you have to bring in some new blood. And at the moment, without the, the funds to bring in a whole new squad, you've got to start blooding some youngsters in. What else can we lose? I mean, I've got to say at this point, I mean, this is why I was kind of sort of teeing up my Modelo Especials with the the business kind of moniker, because what I saw with Brentford was a club, an organisation, a football business with structure, you know, with a philosophy, with an approach to it, not just the game, but even even reading some of the news with Lars Fries, who's joined now as in their academy as a new individual development coach. I mean, just think about that for a second. This is this is Brentford that understand that as a role and can identify the skills required, make a hire as an individual development coach within their academy. You know, that's that's business, that's serious, you know, that's Brentford showing that they know what what the you know the business of championship football is. We are light years away from making that higher. And all we're doing is talking about, do we bring the kids in? You know, do we throw this at the wall? Do we throw that at the wall? And where's the manager? Who's the next manager? It's all short-term reactionary panic, you know? It's just not, it's not, it's not business. We need some business. The funny thing is, Paul, and, and I, I think you listened carefully this morning in, uh, in the conversation that James and I had on, uh, on, on the Wednesday week yesterday in terms of kind of, you know, giving credit to the Brentford model, because I totally agree with you. I mean, it, they are light years ahead of where Wednesday are in terms of sophistication. But it, what's what's very clear is that the, the strategy we have had has been exactly what you just described. It's been the spaghetti against the wall strategy of if we spend enough, we'll achieve it. 
you know, if we throw if we throw enough players with experience at the top end of the championship or the lower end of the premiership and high wages together, we'll get a team that will just dig us out of the championship. That was the plan. And it didn't work in season one. It didn't work in season two. And now we're reaping the, uh, not the rewards, but the, you know, the ills of, of that strategy, if you can call it that Uh, in comparison, you know, in hiring freeze through today, for example, Brentford said very explicitly, we are not a club who can afford to buy players at the top of their market value. Therefore, we have to develop them. They're explicit in the way their model has to work. And, and we haven't come to that recognition yet. You know, we're, we're at a point of transition where, where Mr. Chansiri, I think, is realising that, that the approach can't go on, that he has to cut the cloth according to the nature of, of Sheffield Wednesday, the local economy, the fan, fans clearly can't tolerate the, the pricing that's been exerted around them. But that doesn't leave us with a way out of this situation. Um, and, and we do need to have a really reasoned conversation about what the right plan is for Wednesday going forward. Well, I think it, it, it almost worked. So there is two different models, like you say. It's, it's, it's the throw money at it and hope it works. And it very nearly worked. I mean, up to 20 minutes um, in the last game of the season, it was almost working. And then fourth place the next season, again, shows it almost worked then. The problem is with this model is by the third year, you're hitting financial fair play rules and you almost have to switch model because you haven't got any more money you can spend, whether the chairman has endless cash or not. FFP rules you can't spend any more than what we've spent already. So that's when you are stuck. And we're in this turning point now, like you say, where the chairman has to um, tighten his belt uh, and look to another model because this current one has failed. So does he go down the route of, um, of Brentford and install a, a director of football and, and a whole new business way of working? Uh, does he have the foresight to do that? Uh, does our new CEO have the foresight to do that? I'm sure he'll come to that later on too. Um, or do we just start cutting corners and cutting costs to try and kind of save a sinking ship? And that's what I'm worried about right now is I feel like we're going for the latter in those two options. I think, too, the problem with switching horses in midstream, so to speak, is they've already committed so much money to these players uh, that are in the squad right now. You know, it's It's been a recurring story about how high the wage bill is, uh, even beyond what they paid in transfer fees sort of unloading these players, you might not actually get particularly good value for them. We won't. We won't get as much as we paid out for, say, Rhodes, for instance. Um, but I think sometimes you have to cut your losses and start again. And I think we're in that stage now where, um, I mean, it saddens me to say, as, as Rhodes' biggest fan, I think we should have to cut our losses. If Sunderland come in with a £5 million bid for Rhodes, which I know there was rumoured to be interested in Rhodes, then I would snap their hands off. Whether we can get that for him now is another question, but uh, you've got. I think one of the positives of the new CEO seems to be she tries to sell off some valuable assets, um, and maybe that's the way forward. Uh, as long as that those assets and that money we get is put back into the team, that's what my kind of uh, uh, must here is. Because sometimes, as we've seen in Charlton, she hasn't often done that. She's tend to basically keep that cash and put it back into the owner's pocket. Um, so that's an interesting way forward. Hopefully we do reinvest in any kind of sales we do we do make in the next few weeks. Um, that would be a really kind of one of the key things I want to see in the next few weeks is is what we can do with uh, our sales and, and buying. I think you do have to be a little bit careful, though, because we're very quickly moving into a relegation scrap. No, we can. Yeah, you've got to be real. You've got to be realistic, Jeff, about what we can achieve in, in the January window. It's probably 
maybe we get a couple of players out and, and hopefully we get more than a couple of players in, but it, it's going to be in that magnitude. It's not going to be an entire squad turnover and, and that's going to take you know, probably two or three windows to complete. I mean, I, I think to allay, you know, maybe the concern you're raising a little bit, Paddy, to me, there's there's a big difference between saying that somebody has a, a history of, of being able to move players on and then the fear that that is conflated with asset stripping. Um, we've not really had any indication whatsoever from Mr. Chancery that he has anything other than the long term, a long term commitment to Wednesday. Um, and he's on record repeatedly uh, as recently as the last steering commit- committee as, you know, really, again, reinforcing the fact that he has no interest whatsoever in getting back his investment. Um, it, you know, it's about a long-term commitment, you know, going all the way through his family. So I think we have to take him at his word on that um, and assume that, yes, if we do sell players, that that money will be available for reinvestment in the squad within the parameters that we have to work within for FFP. Um, the, the question is, can we exert real value from the players that we have available, given that most of those who have va- value at the moment on the treatment table um, and do players want to join a, an environment such as the one that Wednesday are in right now Jeff um, which as you say is, is becoming a relegation dogfight I have to say that you know I, I totally agree with all of this but um, I think regardless of football this is why I was saying it's business is you have with any business you have to have a focus on long term mid term and short term right there's different phases right what we've got right now is all our eggs are in the the, the short term, right? We've got a, a team of players we've invested in. You know, and let's not forget, a lot of these players we're talking about shipping out have still got two, you know, three-year contracts to go, right? It, everything is in the short term. You look at someone like Man City, which, you know, granted, are in a different kind of paradigm to us. But I think right now I read that Man City have got 28 players out on loan around the world that's the long-term strategy right and then you've got the kind of players that are you know dipping in and out of the squad playing in the reserves that's a mid-term strategy you know and then they invest heavily on their their uh, first team what we're doing is doing none of the long term and just throwing everything at the short term which is you know the most worrying thing um we're not set up correctly I think there too was, uh, you know, that was always going to be the model. When even when Chancery came in, the goal was to be in the Premier League by this season, and he built a team to do that, and they came very close in the last two seasons. You know, the right? League, but then what? Then, yeah, but the then league what? can be a dog then, fight, but I mean, even if you look at the way then, they, but then what? Then throw another, you know, fifty million at the short term, right? That you need structure, you need a business, right? I, think, I, I don't. I, I do think I Premier League it. funds help with that i mean even if you look at brentford brentford owns a network of clubs at this point so it's not just you know wednesday is kind of on its own little island and you you mentioned man city and of course they own they have stakes and clubs all over the world they can use melbourne or or nycfc among others as as glorified farm systems as a way to get their you know younger players some reps against varying levels of competition in addition to just loaning out from within uh, the Football League. Wednesday don't have that option. Now, they haven't had a particularly strong youth development system. It's obviously improving, but that's going to take time to to see the benefits of. I think there's a couple different things at play here. If you look at that first season, 
they spent very smartly. You know, look at the players that really made a difference that year. You know, Bannon, Forestieri. They weren't cheap by any stretch of the imagination by uh, championship standards. They also weren't ten million for Jordan Rhodes. You know, whatever Stephen Fletcher's wage bill was. Uh, <laughs> You know, there was that story about they brought in Irby Emanuelson, who I don't think ever got into a game, but was telling everyone that would listen that they had one of the highest uh, wages on the team. So I think it got a little haywire even last season. Maybe, you know, Chancery got a taste of it. We were there a little ahead of schedule and was looking for the, the player here, the player there that would put the team over the top. And now, yeah, some of it's FFP coming home to roost. Some of it's just there's an entire injured squad that would be a legitimate playoff contender if they were all healthy but they're not i mean you're right there are there are underlying issues here and we've talked about them on the show about you know does chance theory have the right people around him to sort of build out the club as a long-term project you know he's not from any sort of soccer background as we know there was the original committee that came in when he came in but very quickly sort of flitted here and flitted there and, and flitted off in the distance and then it was just sort of everything was going fine because the team was winning and now they've hit a, a very bad patch some of its injuries some of its tactics some of its perhaps you know players now being on the you know the players we bought in 2015 being on the downside of their peak but I don't know what the uh what the solution is but I don't think it's I don't necessarily think it was the wrong strategy. I think the right way to look at this is, uh, again, I don't know, maybe I'm uh, short on sleep, so I'm high on optimism, but it's not too late to start putting that infrastructure in place. You know, we're, we're, we're at an apex point right now where we we have the chance to both address the short term in terms of ensuring that we survive this season that's the first priority we have to take action in this window with both the coach that comes in the players that come in the players that go out that make sure we retain our status in the championship the medium turn has to be then settling a squad that can get promoted out of the out of the championship and that's the next two to three years but the long term you can start implementing for right now and you know let's again let's give mr chancery the benefit of the doubt he has hired a ceo which is recognizing that he needs to take needs to bring someone else in to take more control accountability of the day-to-day of the overall running of Sheffield Wednesday. If he then follows that up by bringing in a sporting director who can oversee the entire sporting infrastructure, including youth development, including recruitment, scouting, and the network with other clubs overseas, a la Brentford model, then he's he's really listening to what we're saying. And it's not too late to do that. Um, we can argue about whether that should have been in place before, but the reality is where we stand right now, it's not. So uh, we, we just simply have to hope that we start putting those building pla- blocks in place a lot faster. Um, but as I said, the, the short term we have to deal with right now is making sure we stay in the championship. As far as the short term of this podcast, we'll take a break now. We come back. It's more news. It's been a busy week. How I Became a Wednesday Night will return next week. But instead, we'll spend some time discussing the one big hire over the past week, and that is our new Wednesday CEO. More news is just more news here on the Owls Americast. And as we mentioned in the 
first bit of the show, the Wednesdayites do have a new CEO, but given her past at Charlton, is this the right person for the job, James? Um, well, I mean, let's be honest, the, uh, the fan reaction would say no. Um, I think I'm on record, so I'm going to stick to the same same position that I, I talked about on on the Wednesday week yesterday, which is that I think we have to judge her on the results that she delivers at Wednesday. Um, you know, she's coming with a lot of controversy, and um, I think for for some of that, that's well earned. Um, some naive mistakes in terms of how she communicated to the fan base at Charlton, in particular, and things that she was willing to say on record, which you know, clearly got her into a very, very difficult relationship with them very early in her tenure. I, I think you could reasonably ask, you know, how many of the things that she's accused of being responsible for, she was actually either responsible for directly or um, or forced to carry the can for as a result of the uh, the ownership structure um, above her. Um, and an owner who, you know, certainly would not engage with the fans the way that the Delphon Chancery will do with uh, with Wednesday. So for me, the jury's out. Um, I think the signal it sends is is concerning. Um, but I, I want to see her prove us wrong. You know, show that she's learned from uh, from what she uh, what she experienced at the Valley. I mean, what it does come down to really is, you know, do you trust Chancery at this point? Because I think you make a good point there, James. Where how much of it, how much of the CEO's job is just being the public face of the ownership group and sort of putting a public relations spin on whatever it is they want to do. Um, we still don't know a lot about the structure of the club, I guess, even after the 16-part Ask the Chairman Q&A series, as far as, like, day-to-day decisions and, like, you know, who decided to spend $10 million on Jordan Rhodes. Um, you know, will there be a director of sport? Will the next manager they bring in have say over those kind of uh, squad and recruitment decisions. We just don't know. You know, Charlton was a mess for other reasons, I think. Um, but there are a lot of CEOs out there, I feel like, Patty, and they probably could have picked one that wouldn't be an immediate PR nightmare for the club. Yeah, and that's why I don't get. I mean, Chancery over and over again has stated it's a family club. He wants us to be a family. He's very open, he's very honest. Sometimes a little too honest, a little bit too open. Um, and this doesn't really match up uh, with the past like two years uh, of building, trying to build a family. Um, in anything, if, if any case, it's, it's basically the opposite of that. If you want to em- employ somebody to send a message to fans that, hey, things are going to change around here, then this is the appointment to make. Now, I've tried to uh, uh, compile the top 10 lists. Uh, of Catherine Mier's uh, achievements while at Charlton. Uh, and I've, uh, I've got a little thing here to run you down. So let me just uh, set this up a second. All right. So in at number 10, she sold off valuable players and replaced them with cheap, free alternatives. At number nine this week, she went through eight managerial changes. Number eight, hired professionals to have negative articles taken offline. At number seven in the charts this week, she refused to listen to support groups, which obviously affects us, Owls Americas, and responded to complaints. So my favorite ones here, number six and number five, some of the weird PR stunts she uh, pulled while in uh, charge at Carlton. Number six, I believe, is the fan sofa. 
if you don't know what I'm talking about, please check it on Twitter. Search for the Charlton fan sofa, which is pitch side. Number five, again, a very weird advertisement to uh, get pitch higher. It was basically a CCTV uh, footage of two fans going onto the Charlton pitch and having sex. Very strange. Number four, she stopped disabled supporters from using the main lifts in one stand as they were inconveniencing the VIP lounge members. Pretty bad. Number three this week, she slagged off the fans to journalists, telling them she doesn't care about the club history, calling them weird for having an emotional attachment to the club, and compared them to customers at a cinema or a restaurant. Not great, guys. Number two this week is the way she handled all the fan protests uh, towards her and the ownership of Charlton. It was just too numerous to mention here. Check it up. Uh, it's just a horrible uh, mess of a problem. Number one... Tell me lies, baby. Sweet little lies. Over and over again. Um, she's lied to the fans. She lied to the, the, uh, the uh, journalists uh, of Potter Charlton. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the top 10 of Catrien Mier. Not bad, eh? Boom. Mic drop. <laughs> wow. I'm shocked that Patty actually this. prepared for this show. I'm, I'm fi- it's five to three in the morning and, and I'm I'm bolt upright. That is, uh, that's taken my five off for two weeks, guys. I've been uh, preparing that piece, which uh, lasted two minutes. So uh, thank you and good night. Amazing. Amazing, Patty. Uh, so, yes, those are her failings at Charlton. And I don't think they should be ignored. Um, I, I know that we should give her a new start. And I did choose to rule out quite a lot of things from this list too, because there's something in this list. And to be fair to the guy that published the list uh, on drinking during the game blogspot.co.uk, <laughs> which is this guy's blog. He has a massive essay of all of her uh, failings at Charlton. Uh, and, I, and I think a lot of it, as James will probably point out in a second, is down to the ownership at Charlton too. So yes, she was a mouthpiece for a crazy owner, at Charlton, but she did some pretty bad shit too. And uh, you can't just look over that. And it's, it's a very, very concerning appointment for me. Uh, so yeah, it deserved the top 10 treatment. Paul, where do you come down on all of this? Oh, I was, I was playing the, uh, the bass guitar in that music, mate. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm right behind it all. You know, I've just been furious, you know, um, I, I don't understand. I just think, I don't, I don't know much about, you know, the, the kind of day-to-day running of a football club. But I do know about, you know, hiring executives and I just, I can't understand it. There's just, you know, there's just way too much smoke here. Um, this is a kind of a toxic candidate for me. Um, I'm scratching my head because I, all I can say is I hope that, you know, we all know that our chairman is now trying to turn the page and move on. Um, and I'm hoping that this was the only sole decision he makes. Um, and, and I hope that this new CEO brings in a team, builds a board, builds in the right infrastructure to start making collective democratic decisions about the good of a business. Um, so maybe I can swallow this one, but I am so confused by this hire. I really am. I guess for the uh, 
negative Nancys on the show, what could she do in the next week or two that might alleviate some of your concerns? Uh, sign George Hurst back to a contract to Sheffield Wednesday. That would be the one thing to get her fans on side with her right now. I know it's out of, like, put that out of my ass, but basically that's the one thing that people are going to like. I mean, you've got all this bad press against you. What people want to see, they want to see the local legend's son play with Sheffield Wednesday, and that's something that the current regime hasn't been able to do. Uh, it, it, it would be uh, uh, a good first step, probably not the biggest achievement, I think she should, also, she should probably hire a really good manager, um, but I think that's a really kind of uh, kind of shoot for the stars kind of uh, ambition. I think for for me, it has to be hiring a director of of football. I think uh, you know I said this through the week on social media. I think, but um, I'm nervous that we we make a knee jerk manager hire. I think we need to make the right infrastructure hires first and collectively make the decision about the right manager. You know, maybe it's all pie in the sky, but I can't help but kind of, you know, keep going, think backwards and get to a point where you have to have the right philosophy and direction to be able to hire the right manager. I know that's probably not going to happen because everyone's sort of baying for blood if we don't get a manager just so we can probably argue about how wrong that hire was as well. But (laughs) I, for me, it would be to, to to go for the director of football, build a board, and make some collective decisions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, again, I, I've kind of staked my claim on a lot of these these subjects over the last couple of weeks. For me, the director of football role doesn't work. You know, that's that that's a figurehead, somebody who comes in and meddles in first team affairs. Uh, I want a director of sport, someone who looks at the entire infrastructure. So I think we're getting at the same thing, Paul. But but it needs to be that broader remit that includes you know the way the club sets up long term and how it it kind of invests in in youth development and scouting, etc. Yeah, you know so, what? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, we talk about the same exactly that same role. Yeah, so, right. same thing, different names. Yeah, but but you know what? I'm I'm going to lower expectations a whole whole long way because I'm you know what we don't know yet is we don't know exactly what the the title CEO means at Sheffield Wednesday. We don't know the remit that she's been given. Uh, we don't even know the reporting structure who is, you know, who's lined up to report into her. Um, we don't know how much leniency Mr. Chancery has given her in terms of, of running the day-to-day operations. We don't even know, for example, if she's going to be involved in the decision over who is appointed manager, well, first team coach in, in the coming weeks. So, you know, the expect- the thing that she could do very early in her tenure, which I would expect any incoming CEO to do in, in, in any organization I work with, is to lay out her, her first 100-day plan for the organization. I'd expect her to do that internally in, in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I'd expect her to be giving you know clear communication to the fan base and, and to the local media about what she's intending to do at Sheffield Wednesday, what she's been asked to do. Um, and what what she's planning to develop, and if that means that she's going to give us some indication that that we are going to develop a longer term strategy whilst firefighting this season, I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt. Um, but we've got to watch very very closely what those early signals are. Uh, and to be honest, buddy, I, I understand the kind of the PR coup that George Hurst would represent, but I don't think that helps us with the short term goal or necessarily the long term goal either. Um, that could be a distraction if we if we're just wanting to throw money at the George Hurst problem. I think, too, there is sort of a weird vacuum around the club right now, in in part due to Carlos leaving, just because he was such a such a charismatic figure, and although his tactics didn't really work this year, there was sort of an overarching idea of, of how we wanted to play and, you know, what the 
sort of the on-field product was going to look like that we kind of ignored the off-field stuff for the most part. Like I said, well, every, you know, a lot of that stuff gets papered over when you're winning. And then when you stop winning and, you know, when your manager gets sacked, as they so often do eventually, we're now left sort of with this sort of like gaping maw that is uh, the unknown short-term, medium-term, and long-term. So eventually we do have to come to a managerial hire, and obviously there's been plenty of names bandied about over the past couple weeks, from Steve McLaren to Andre Villas-Boas to Paulo Fonseca to most recently Paul Jewell, though God knows if there's anything to that. Who, for as far as short-term goes, I guess first off, would you even be looking for a short-term manager, a, a firefighter in this case? Or would you have an eye towards, uh, you know, someone that can take the reins of the club, you know, through the summer, help build out a squad for a promotion push next year or the year after? I think if you are hiring a short-term boss, you've got to have a long-term plan. So it's one thing to say we're going to hire, say, I don't know, someone in for the rest of the season and review his contract then. But you'd have to have someone lined up if that all went wrong. I don't really have faith that we've got we plan that far ahead at the moment. I think I'd prefer to have someone that's going to take us forward for the next year and a half, two years. Um, whether that works out or not is another question. And that's where you start looking at a list of people and you go, who really has that kind of experience to, to dig us out what we're in right now and we'll set take up, a championship-level job. Yeah, and set up the system that we need uh, in the absence of a director of sport, director of football, um, which, personally, I have no faith in that happening at all. Um, so we have, we, we've been told we're looking at managers. So we've got to look at the managers available. And currently, Paul Lambert is odds-on favourite. I'll, I'll run through the list as, as you like. Paul Lambert is odd on favourites. Uh, Gus Poyet is two to one. Jeez, Gus Poyet's still there. Eh? He's been a uh, yeah, he's hanging around he's like been a stalwart of that odds list. Two to one is ma- it's like crazy odds. Uh, Steve McLaren is still hanging there, but I think from this list, no one really has a clue. Steve McLaren's still hanging around there, even though he's been ruled out. Claudio Ranieri fourteen to one. That would be amazing, but I don't see that happening either. There's some big names in this list. Uh, AVB, 16 to 1. People like to bet the big <laughs> names, I think, is sort of the working theory here. I mean, Jose Riga, who was a Charlton boss, is is a shout. But didn't she sack him twice? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah. I think she sacked him twice. I'm not sure, but either way, she hired him twice and sacked him twice. Uh, so it's, it's not a bad shout. Bullen at 18 to 1 at the same price as Jose Riga, so you can see how bad that price is. Then Martin O'Neill, someone called Martin. I swear to God, if they hire Martin O'Neill, was that what? Is that a bad, bad appointment? I really like. <laughs> I just I don't like watching his teams play. But you can you can ruffle feathers. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be upset with that. I don't think it's going to happen. But I, I think he might be all right. Yeah. I don't Keep know who going. Juan Antonio Pizzi is. Do not know who he is? 
Who? The same odds as Nigel Pearson, Paul Hurst, and Simon Grayson. So I think we're getting to the interesting here that one of the people that have been mentioned quite a lot is Karanka, and he's lower than these people like Pearson, who's been ruled out, and uh, Steve McLaren. So the Karanka rumor is obviously not really positive at all. But then again, looking at this list, it looks like no one's really got a clue. So has anyone got a favorite that they want to, to take over? Because I really don't have any clear favorites out of this list. No, again, because I, I I I can't answer that question because you know any one of those guys might be right, but there's no framework, there's no structure, there's no idea as to sort of a philosophy and direction that you can drop a manager into. Right? You know, I, I am not a believer that you can bring in an individual, you know, and a team of kind of close kind of colleagues, whether they're technical analysts or coaching staff or you know or motivators that is going to significantly change our trajectory you know i think we need we need to take that step back you know it it could be pearson you know it could even be mclaren i i don't i i can't answer that question this is what i'm really worried about is making a knee-jerk kind of old school kind of decision based on bringing a manager and he's going to change everything i just don't see that happening I mean, it may just come down to the the best thing that can happen is the squad gets a little bit healthier over the month of January. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, we've got an, an, our entire first eleven out. I mean, that right there has to be a start point, right? Well, we're not hiring a, a miracle cure or anything like that. We're just hiring a manager. How's he going to make everyone fit? Jane Fonda. Let's just get some Jane Fonda going on. <laughs> Is yoga the answer? <laughs> so yes, basically a list of very um, un unassuming and unkind of innovative uh, managers as usual. Although there are some big names down in there just to spice things up, but the chances of us getting Ranieri, Ranieri, uh, I think, are very slim. There is still a match to preview, of course, and uh, hopefully we can lighten the mood a little bit on the Owls AmeriCast with a look at our upcoming FA Cup opponents, Carlisle United. It is the magic of the cup. The FA Cup third round. The day that dreams come true for plumbers and <laughs> stonemasons or whatever uh, non-league hoofit footballers might have pr- progressed this far. As for Wednesdayites, they head to Carlisle and to talk a little bit about that lovely, what are we calling it, James? City, town, hamlet? I think it's a city, but um, I'm not entirely uh, confident in that acclamation. So I'll, I'll check Wikipedia as we talk about it to try and give you a straight answer. While you're checking that, can I just uh, point out that their training ground is called Sheep Mount Athletic Stadium. Sheep Mount, as in mounting sheep. Well, that's probably quite a nice little segue, actually, that uh, that Paddy. Um, so maybe we need to orient everybody, orientate everybody, I should say. Orient? We're not going to Leighton Orient, we're going to Carlisle. Um, so Carlisle is a uh, is a city. Um, I've, uh, I've just had a look at this. It's uh, Apparently there's 
110,000 people in the wider Carlisle city area. Um, it's pretty much the only city actually in that part of the world, um, which is uh, sort of just south of the Scottish English border um, in the, the northwest of England, um, a little bit on top of the Lake District, really. So um, the Lake District's a beautiful, picturesque, you know, Wordsworth country um, up in the, uh, the area in the north of England um, with uh, beautiful fells and lakes and uh, and beautiful kind of vistas of, of picturesque English uh, scenic beauty. Uh, Carlisle isn't that. It's the town that uh, everybody gets the train to in order to uh, to go to the Lake District. Um, but apparently it's been knocking around since, uh, well, since around sort of the uh, the, the 10,000 era. Uh, so uh, 10,000? Uh, it really is late in the morning, isn't it? Um, about uh, 900 some odd AD anyway. Um an old Roman town. It used to service Hadrian's Wall. So uh, fans of Game of Thrones would see this as sort of the, um, I think they call it Mole Town in Game of Thrones, where, uh, where everybody goes to uh, basically kind of relieve themselves off the Night's Watch when uh, when things getting dodgy and there's a bunch of uh, whitelings and, uh, and zombies heading in their direction. Um, again, I'm probably describing the people of Carlisle. I have to be honest, I don't really know because I've only been once and that was to, uh, to change trains. Um, so I had to look up a little bit about what Carlisle's really about. The first thing you need to know is it rains a lot in Carlisle. So they uh, they get an average precipitation of about 34 inches of rain every year. So um, I guess that means it's raining most days. Um, second thing is that um, they decided to uh, to try and kind of, you know, boost tourism um, in Carlisle when the, when the millennium was coming around. So they uh, they created something called the uh, the Cursing Stone. Um, which is a, uh, a basically a, a big piece of public art which uh, recreates a 16th century curse that had been invoked on Carlisle by the Bishop of Glasgow. Um, he was having a bit of a pop across the border at the time. Um, ever since they put that up in 2000, Carlisle has suffered from repeated flooding, uh, foot and mouth disease, which is not the, uh, the thing that affects small children, but the actual one that uh, decimates whole herds of cows, um, tra- tragic job losses, um, and a goal famine for the football team. So uh, so that particular piece of public art wasn't particularly well received. Um, and that brings us all the way around to the football team itself, which is uh, which is Carlisle United. Not to be confused with Carlisle City, uh, who are a semi-professional side who uh, who play in the Northwest Counties Football League, apparently, after 40 years in the Northern Football Alliance League. Um, Carlisle United um, really haven't really done very much. They did top the uh, the English divisions very briefly in 1974, uh, before plummeting all the way through the fourth division and then out into the conference um, in uh, kind of about 20 years ago. Um most notable, really, however, for the fact they stayed in the football league um, in 1999. They, uh, on the final day of the season, they uh, they had to win their last game uh, against Plymouth Argyle. Um, they weren't winning it; they were drawing it in the uh, the 90th minute. And uh, they sent their odd lone goalkeeper Jimmy Glass up front, who uh, who scored uh, with pretty much the last kick of the game in injury time. Uh, they won two one, and that meant that Scarborough got relegated instead of Carlisle. So, pretty much everyone in British football, I think, really kind of uh, thinks of them for that that moment. So, I think uh, it did top like every like last minute goal top ten list really up until Aguero. Pr- pretty astonishing, really. And Jeff, you'll be pleased to know that when they were playing that game, they uh, they were playing in their beautiful blue, white, and red uh, football shirt, which you uh, so famously don't know anything about. Um, and I think that one definitely did have Ed, Eddie Stobart on the front, the famous Br- British haulage company. So, so yeah, that's Carlisle. Um, not really a particularly notable place. Um, very wet, um, cursed, and uh, with a football team that relies on the goalkeeper to score goals. So, uh, so we'll probably lose. I was going to say, it probably won't be a particularly notable game one way or the other. I'd say we should start the uh, 
the second team squad because we really can't value the cup this year, but we kind of already are regardless. So, yeah, I mean, I have to remember that this is a this is a club that you know are not necessarily experiencing their uh, their better days. They're sitting twelve places above, thirteen places above oblivion, the bottom of League Two. So they're pretty close. They can almost smell non-league football. So don't want to be, uh, you know, the, the kind of harbinger of doom. But given our record this uh, this season for awful stories, um, it doesn't bode too well for us, does it? Because we're not doing so well. We'll diversify what teams at the foot of the table we can't beat. Just in every right. league. <laughs> <laughs> every league, right? Does anyone think I'll, that our under-23s would struggle against this team? Well, that's the that's the question. Is I would play them all. Play them yeah. all. Other than Stobbs, of course. I would just... I mean, surely a, a well-to-do championship under-23 side should compete with a League 2 mid-table mediocrity side. you think so. I just I don't see why we would even risk the three decent players we Another have left injury. available. <laughs> I mean, throw Jones in there, throw Butterfield in there, hopefully get injured for the rest of the season. But I mean, don't throw Reach in there. Yeah, cross his fingers, hopefully Jones and Butterfield and Morgan Fox get injured for life. Um, but um, I think just throw the under-23s in there. I think they'll give them a game. It gets fans' spirits up. Um and it puts us on the uh, very, very small step uh, towards uh, the Friday game against our esteemed city neighbours. Which we will have a fairly epic preview for, I feel like, next week. But for now, is there any other business? That sounds like a resounding no. I got nothing, mate. I got nothing. So I will just tell you, this has been episode 13 of the Owls AmeriCast. You can find us on the internet at owlsamericas.com, email the show at owlsamericas at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at owlsamericas. Our podcast intro and bumpers are by fellow Wednesday Ice Reverend and the Makers. The podcast is on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbeam, and probably anywhere else you choose to download podcasts. There's no wrong way to listen to the show, just do what feels right. Wherever you choose to consume Owls AmeriCast, we ask that you rate and review the show that helps more Wednesdayites find our ramblings. Speaking of ramblings, you can leave the show a voicemail on our Days in Mumbled line at 1-401-307-1867. International rates do apply, but you can dial it for free using Google Voice. Paul is on Twitter, at the Wednesday. Paul, what's your favorite uh, memory from Top of the Pops? Oh God! Top of the pops! Oh, Jesus Jimmy Christ! Sullivan, I hadn't. I know. I was. Li- I had no idea you can ask me that. I, 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 I am not a Jimmy Savile fan at all. But what I was saying in the break there was that when I heard that music that Paddy was playing, all I could think of was Jimmy Savile, which made me really worried. Started rubbing my legs, sweaty palms, in anxiety. Jim will fix it for you, and you, and you, and ba ba ba. Paddy's on Twitter. I've got to go to sleep. Do not do that to me. And at New York Owls. Paddy, where are the meetups this weekend for this game that's not on TV? There are no meetups this weekend because the game is not on TV. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. <laughs> we'll see you back here next week. Paddy, play us out.
gave up four goals to Burton. I know we never beat Burton, but it was bad. The good news is it was only three. Was it three? Was that four? No, it was three. <laughs> I thought it was four. <laughs> I was thinking, was it was it one offside or something? No, it was three. 